Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 37, and we're continuing the saga of late 18th century Xhosa kingdoms. Last episode, we heard about the young king Nika's actions as he sidelined his uncle Ntlambe, but doing so angered Ntlambe's younger brother, Mnyalusa, who then took it upon himself to rate Xhosa and Trekpur as a kind of equal opportunity bandit. By late in the 18th century, the Zurfeld was home to small groups of sand, some Khoikhoi chieftains, several Khoza chieftains, and Trekpurs. They were mixing up together in a fairly confined territory and jostled each other increasingly angrily to secure the summer and winter grazing. While the sand weren't particularly interested in the grazing as they did not keep livestock, the pressure on the land was increasing. Cultural ignorance concerning each other's understanding of the nature of land ownership made things worse. Colonists had a sense of private property, and they were spreading across the territory using the concept of Leningsplatzen, loan farms, that we've heard about. For the Trekboer, the Leningsplatzen was not a shared space. It belonged to a single person or investors and had defined boundaries, which could be mapped. In contrast, La Matrosa saw land as a communal property, with its usage to be allocated by a chief. Where the cattle-owning parties saw the herds and flocks as their capital assets, and an indication of wealth and power, the temptation was also to supplement their livestock through raiding or violence. As historian Jeff Perez has pointed out, the coming wars over this land meant that neither the settlers nor the Amakosa were wholly innocent nor wholly culpable. Of course, that's quite a statement these days where there is a general perception that whites stole the land from blacks, and political parties have created a kind of lock-stock-and-smoking-barrel policy of taking it all away and giving it all back. Historical truths are flouted by contemporary and ignorant politicians in order to paint pictures without nuance. It's easier for a person with a political axe to deal with this topic in broad sweeps, as most politicians are not necessarily the sharpest intellectual tools in the human shed. Initially, both Trekboers and Amatkosa held back from confrontation because hunters and traders on both sides were benefiting from their transactions. While direct trade was forbidden by the VOC, There was nothing they could do from Cape Town to stop this sort of interaction. The Boers were in search of cattle and ivory that the Amakosa hunted from the great herds of elephants that still roamed the felt. In exchange, the Amakosa wanted copper sheets, brass wire, pieces of iron, knives, tobacco, brandy, looking glasses, glass beads, flints and tinderboxes, amongst others. But above all, they desired muskets and horses. As the Trek Boers came to realize quite swiftly, the Amakosa were no pushovers when it came to trade. They knew the exact value of the goods they traded, and if there was a sign of dishonesty by the trader, word would get around and that man pretty much was doomed. Worse, he was probably also in danger. The Amakosa and the Zufeld began to sell their labor to the white farmers as herdsmen, domestic servants and gardeners. The farmers were short of labor and they could not avoid employing the Amakosa, prepared to work for them, but these men and women were very different from the Khoi servants. If the Trekpur treated the Amakosa workers badly by using violence, they would often be visited by a band of Amakosa warriors which alarmed the farmers who were used to getting their own way. Large bands of Amakosa would often wander about the Zufeld, and when they came across a farmer, they would demand presents. The Trekboers didn't understand that this was a custom. A poor man always visited a rich man, asking for food, and those who were prosperous could expect regular visitors. This was a kind of social insurance policy for rich Khoza. The Trekboers did not see it that way. 
After all, a rich cause today could be a poor cause tomorrow. What made this misunderstood custom even more alarming for the settlers was that they were thinly scattered across the felt on the isolated farms, and the roaming bands of Amakosa bristled with menace, so that the begging began to morph into a form of exacting tribute. Boer vulnerability meant the settlers hardened their attitudes towards the Amakosa. They regarded themselves as Christians and therefore culturally superior to what they thought of as the savage, treacherous heathens among whom they found themselves. There would be no integration. The Dutch farmers' social lives, their kinship networks and political structures could not tolerate intermarriage with the Amakosa. Ironically, the Amakosa society was traditionally open and it was the norm to incorporate others. They had incorporated white shipwrecked sailors, orphaned European children who had become Koza grandmothers, and Khoikhoi, amongst other peoples. While the Amakosa really did have a reason to dread the Trek Boers, at this point they factored in their superior numbers and dismissed the idea that they could ever be dominated. The conversations around the king and the chiefs often turned to what to do with these new arrivals, and the general consensus was that they would be absorbed into the Amakosa way of life. What the king didn't factor into the equation was the idea that the Trek Boer regarded themselves as utterly different from the local people, despite being obviously human. Stand back for a moment and consider this from the Koza point of view. Both people lived in virtually the exact same way, a life dominated by males who hived off to build their new farms and centred on the value of cattle. Both could fire firearms and ride horses. Both felt the rhythm of the African felt. They were rained on, electrocuted by violent lightning, gored to death by angry buffalo or elephant. Both would die if shot with a sand arrow. The Boers often lived in the same sort of structures as the Amatkosa. But what the Amatkosa found out was that the Boers were not going to be part of the normal way of life in Kosa land, as had happened for hundreds of years. There was an established path to fuller social integration, as historian John Labund calls it, things such as intermarriage, but that was not the plan. What usually happened next, as you've heard from our outline of older Amatkosa politicking, was that eventually alliances would form with powerful settler chiefs, so to speak, the outsiders would agree to the leadership of the Amakosa king and then pay tribute as a sign of subordination. However, the Boers and later the British settlers would have none of that. The Trek Boers already knew what they wanted, and that was to drive the Amakosa out of the Zürfeld and keep it for themselves as individuals, not only because there wasn't enough pasturage for both Boer and Kosa, but because they saw the Amakosa as undesirable to have around. They were fine as individuals working as herders or domestics, but not in groups hanging about. And no one was more determined to reinforce this principle than Willem Prinsler. I introduced him last podcast, starting at the upper reaches of the Little Fish River in the north and following the river down to its confluence with the Great Fish. A line was then drawn down to the sea, and this boundary was the Cape Colony's boundary, its border. The BOC had already allowed farmers who were attacked further inland and south by the sand to move across this border, including three families of the Prinslers. They were a clan that hard-nosed patriarch Willem Prinsler maintained as his own small army, and they did their best to see off the Amatkosa settled along the upper reaches of the Fish River. He was a robber baron by any other name, and what made his job easier was the unsettled state of the Amatkosa as I outlined in episode 36. Rarabi's actions after Paolo died in 1775 made the region more unstable. Rarabi focused his wrath on the westernmost Kosa chieftains, the Amagwali, the Imidange, and the Amantinde, ordering them to return from the west of the fish and consider themselves under his rule. They refused, as you know. 
Rarabi, as you also know, would die fighting the Poza region in Tlambi. The Prince Louis picked a fight with Amagwali over cattle rustling and then disrupted the Poza settlements in the Zurfeld, pushing them out. Governor van Plettenberg decided to head out to see what was going on for himself in 1778. Prince Louis, as we've heard, pleaded for permission to expand Dutch territory. Van Plettenberg then tried to meet Rarabi, but the Poza chief failed to turn up. Instead, Van Plettenberg met Korba, the son of Titi, the chief of the Amagwali. Korba agreed that the existing boundary line I mentioned a moment ago was correct, as did the other minor chiefs, but of course the Amagwali king did not. The problem was that Van Plettenberg's deals with these lesser chiefs had no authority to bind the other greater chiefs, let alone the Amagwali king. The Dutch never grasped this, and why would they? They didn't believe these people were equals anyway and became indignant later, as you'll hear. Van Plettenberg signed a few documents, smoked an Nsangu pipe or two, then headed back to Cape Town in 1779, when Willem Steenkamp started the First Frontier War. Remember, he'd shot a Tkosa man accused of stealing a sheep. The Amagwali took issue with this, and it was now time to teach the Amabulu, the Boers, a lesson. The very name Amabulu is an example of just how integrated the Amagwali thought of these settlers. Amabulu, Amagwali, Amakosa, Amazulu. It's got a certain indigenous ring to it, has it not? So a war party descended on several farms in the Brankies Huchter area and made off with what the farmers said were 21,000 head of cattle. We don't believe that number these days. It's probably more than the entire herd living in the Zirfeld at the time. But nevertheless, back to the story. The Amagwali focused their anger on Willem Prinsler, raising his farm to the ground and taking all his cattle and sheep. The Amagwali were not noticeably warlike, unlike the Mtetwa and Ndwandwe, for example, further north in Zululand. But they did have a deep honour culture, the difference really being that men's reputations and fame were gained through cultivating domestic virtues of the homestead and wisdom rather than the bloodlust of military heroism. Men of rank in Amakosa society in those days prided themselves in the gentlemanly-like behavior, unruffled grace and courtesy, sagacity of counsel, rather than an oblique pursuit of women, treasure, and blood. At the same time, they were also competitive and were taught to be aggressive, particularly during combat exercises and the hunt. Stick-fighting groups competed under the supervision of the elders, preparing them for the painful rite of circumcision. Boys sometimes died in these tough stick-fighting bouts, but the survivors were proud of their ability to be tough and strong. Once initiated at around 18 years of age, young men would be on constant call to serve the king or chief, but after marriage, the young adult warriors were expected to restrain their aggression. By the time the Amatkosa came into serious conflict with the Trekpurs, their warfare had evolved from the tournament-style fights of the 17th and early 18th century. Their battles were fought at an agreed time and place between two sides, throwing spears from a distance. Cattle raids and counter-raids were the usual practice, but full-blown wars were rare. Usually there was an attempt at smoothing things over through diplomacy before hostilities broke out. By the time the Amakosa faced the Trekpurs in the late 18th century, their warfare had evolved. There was a sharper edge that developed as the sons of the House of Paolo fought more viciously internally for control over their people. The bitterness in these battles prepared the Amakosa to some extent for the upcoming frontier wars, which would last 100 years.
During the 19th century, their techniques of war evolved still further when they began fighting with firearms and on horseback like the Boers and the British. The national weapon was the spear with an iron blade. You know by now that the Khoza could smelt their own iron and work weapons and agricultural implements. But there wasn't much iron in Khoza land itself, and they had developed the habit over many centuries of exchanging iron for cattle. There were eight different kinds of spear developed over the centuries, used for hunting and war. Some had serrated edges to rip. Others were barbed at the base like wicked giant fishhooks, and each had a name. Straight-bladed spears were also used as an awl for leatherwork or as a surgical instrument for circumcision. The hafts were usually about one and a half meters long, and the throwing technique involved a sharp flick of the wrist that caused the spear to quiver through the air and that rotated the weapon, making it vibrate inside a wound, causing it to penetrate further. The best warriors could hit the enemy at 50 paces. Then the enemy, of course, would pick up the spears that missed and fling them back. So each warrior carried a bundle of throwing spears in a quiver, or held them usually in his left hand during a battle. They also used broad-bladed stabbing spears for close quarters, and a stout knobkeri, as it's known in South Africa. That's a throwing stick with a knob at the end about the size of a man's fist, and when used properly, cracks a skull. The Amakosa commanders could order their men to charge or get inside if a battle was indecisive. Then the knobkeri and stabbing spear was ideal. But if the warriors were without these stabbing spears, they'd break off half the shaft of their throwing spear and then use that as the stabbing spear. During the 18th century, the Amatkoza tended to carry a small oval-shaped cowhide shield. Later, they had heard about the larger shields used by the Amamtetwa and Ndwandwe, so tried these out. But with the advent of firearms, of course, shields became useless, and most Koza in the 19th century tended to use their skin cloaks wrapped around their left arms to protect against thrusting and cutting weapons. You'll know by now, too, that the Amakosa did not have age-related Amabuto regiments, the type that the precursors to the Zulu began dabbling with in the last quarter of the 18th century. The Kosa paramount was then forced to rely on subordinate chiefs to send warriors to help him fight against external and sometimes internal threats. As soon as the regent declared that the land was dead, or that war was in place, in other words, he sent out messengers carrying oxtails to order the chiefs to respond to his declaration. Women would spread the word by the famous shrill cries from hilltop to hilltop. La, 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 la. Sounds we hear today when there's action afoot. The odd thing to mention here is that the king or chief could not force his followers to turn out, even if they heard the call or received the oxtail. However, most did, because this was a test of their word of honor. They could also be fined many oxen for refusing, so it was a classic carrot and stick moment when word arrived. Most chiefs and kings were forced to call followers together and explain the need to go to war, but the rivalry between the successors of the House of Paolo meant those who responded began to support one or two different regions. When the warriors gathered at the chief's great place, or at any place before battle, they would sing war songs as each contingent marched up. When all had gathered, the men would sing the great Umhobi war anthem. Nyanga or war doctors would spray them with ritual medicines blown out of their mouths, other medicines would be swallowed. Then a black mark was painted on the forehead of every warrior who walked into a nearby stream to wash himself, doctoring his body. The war doctors waited on the bank. Once the men emerged, each would receive a charm that was hung around their necks. This meant that the warriors would be invulnerable to hostile evil forces and the enemy's weapons and inspire them with courage. Some immediately developed a reckless disregard for their own lives and they were ready for action.
Lining up in lineage-related clans attached to the two main divisions of the army, these men would then march to war. One of the divisions was predominantly the royal clan, and the other, the commoners. It was something like two companies, one of officers and NCOs, and another of rank-and-file troops. They would move quickly over the felt, carrying very little in the way of food and water. Some would carry roasted millies in a hide bag, others would drive slaughter cattle for the evening fires, but once they began moving, the army relied on foraging and raiding. The effect meant that these invasions could not last long, since the usual strategy of defence was the enemy would fall back into a special thick forest or rocky hilltop with their livestock and water, and then empty their pasturage in a kind of scorched earth policy. Unlike the Mtetwa and Dwandwe, Damakwabe and later the Zulu, Damakwaza didn't see any logic in standing and fighting on ground that could not really be defended. It was unwise. Damakwaza were using the logic of live to fight another day rather than dying by virtual suicide. The attacking army would try to surprise their enemy. Pairs of younger warriors were point teams and would deploy in advance of an attack and report back to the scouts. These scouts would then send messages to the commanders of the main army, which was composed of a chest and two wings, left and right. At this point, if you know anything about South African history, you're wondering if I'm talking about the Tkosa or the Zulu. No, my friends, it's the Amakosa. The theory that Shaka created an attack formation of crest and two wings is false. And by the way, it's an ancient art of war. Central force, two flanks, surround the enemy, squeeze, repeat. Damakosa, like the ancient Carthaginians, knew this. If the main army was repulsed, it fell back into the reserve body behind. In the Tkosa case, the Amafanankosi, those who die with the chief. Cryptic orders would be sent hither and thither by the chief who was expected to be visible on the battlefield, like the Franks or the Celts. When the Amafanankosi eventually faced the enemy, they would shout coded messages so that their comrades understood whether it was a call for assistance or reports that the enemy was being overcome. So, after the first attack on Binnum Prinsloa, the Trekboers decided they'd also teach the Amagwali a lesson. In April 1780, Joshua Yobe formed up a commando to punish the Amakosa and drew his army from the men of Swellendam and Stellenbosch. That was a long way away from the Zurfeld. By the end of 1780, Governor van Plettenberg had declared the new Cape Colony border was actually everything west of the Great Fish River. He also declared the Amakosa had agreed to this, which of course they had not. By December 1780, van Plettenberg declared a general commando and instructed the commander, Adrian van Jasvold, to ensure that the Amakosa living west of the Great Fish River be forced to move back to the east bank. And van Jasvold was perfect for the job. His ethnic cleansing exercises fighting the sand had revealed how brutal he could be. In an incident that is shocking and notorious, even considering the bitterness of the war against the sand, he had shot 12 hippos in 1775 at the Siokui River and left their carcasses as bait for the sand. When the people discovered these, his men opened fire on the sand and hacked them to death, killing 122. So in May 1781, he assembled his general commander of 60 frontier Boers to drive the Amakosa out of the Zierfeld. He was to find out, though, pretty quickly that wiping out clans of sand was far easier than fighting a warrior people called the Amakosa, and fighting on the open plains of the highlands was nothing like battling a well-drilled enemy in the dense Zierfeld and riverine bush of the Great Fish River. But more about that next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps elevate the visibility. If you want to contact me, you can email via my website, desmondlatham.com, or direct message me on Twitter, at deslatham. Until next, goodbye.